You can turn to John chapter 12. John 12. I'll give you a minute to go there and we'll open in a word of prayer. Father, again, we come into your presence and we very humbly ask that you communicate to us what you have for us today. Lord, uh, all week we've not been seeking to promote any perspective but a clear vision of Jesus Christ, ultimately the motivation for our change. So once again, as we go to this beautiful passage, and once again, as we see the example of a woman who probably grasped more than a lot of us grasp the preciousness of your son, Jesus Christ, I pray that again, you would refresh, renew, reinvigorate our hearts to a more intimate walk with Jesus Christ this morning. Lord, speak to us. I know you will. I pray that we have ears to hear and hearts to obey. And Lord, I always ask if I say anything not from you, that you would mute our minds, but whatever is from you, enlighten our spirits, that we might be fully obedient. And Lord, I ask that Christ get all the glory. In his name I pray, amen. I would do well to imitate my brother and take his lead in saying thank you before we see a lot of faces that won't be here or we won't see a lot of faces tomorrow morning. Thank you for your kindness. Uh, and I know it sounds like a broken record because it was just said, but I don't know how many times this week uh, Pri and myself have said after another good meal how privileged we've been and how spoiled, I think is probably the best word, to be invited into your campground and you've brought the steaks and you've brought the chili and you've brought the grilled chicken and you've brought the fajitas and amazing food. We've been filled all week. Um, and then the fellowship is equally sweet, if not sweeter. Every morning getting to meet over at David Dixon's site and hearing the word of God uh, from our brother Scott and great times in prayer. Um, 6 a.m. with Jake buying me a cup of coffee every morning. He would never want me to say that, but I just want you to know how I've been blessed by so many of you. It's been precious. And as we go tomorrow, I, I don't see that as any form of an ending. It's actually the privilege we now have to go and show the world what Jesus looks like. And as I said on day one, my prayer has never been for a smarter church. In fact, I think a smarter church is a more I don't want to say condemn because there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus, but let's say a more responsible church. I'm praying for an obedient church. I would rather you get one thing out of this week that you apply than a thousand things that make you smarter and more arrogant and less useful for the glory of God. So my, my question would be, what have you gotten from the Lord? And what is it going to look like on Sunday morning and on Monday morning as you resume your normal life? This morning, I want to take the uh, topic, and it's probably my favorite topic of the week. I'm not saying my favorite story. I think my favorite story would be John chapter 8 that we looked at with Pardon. But this is my favorite topic. We've had a lot of different perspectives of Jesus Christ, from the pardon of Christ, um, to also seeing um, just uh, the, the implications of walking with him. But this morning... I want us to take a look at the preciousness of Jesus Christ. The preciousness of Jesus Christ. Now, looking out at each one of us, there's no doubt in my mind that there are varying levels of preciousness. And what I mean by that is, 
You don't value the Lord Jesus Christ in the same way that most likely the one next to you values Jesus Christ. It's not that you value him less or more. I don't know that. But I would suggest that our valuing of Jesus Christ is drastically different. Let me remind you of last night. God does not love Scott DeGroff more than he loves anyone else in this room. But I want to strongly suggest that Scott DeGroff enjoys the love of God far more than many in this amphitheater. There's no more love that God's got for him. None. But he's choosing to enjoy it. We rob ourselves of recognizing the preciousness of Jesus Christ. Not because Jesus Christ is at fault, but rather we are in love and infatuated with worthless things that will disappear at our death rather than that which is eternal. With that being said, let me start off with a bit of a story to bring out this point. Uh, This wrist, as you can see, is empty of bracelets. Normally I'll have up to 10 to 15 bracelets given me by little kids until they fall off my arm. Right now I'm stuck at three. Apparently recently kids haven't been overly loving and giving me bracelets. No, that's not the point. Um, But periodically I I have to like, I don't know, I'm I'm in a tournament or whatever. I'm not allowed to wear any, so then they all get cut off and you got to start over. But this arm was reserved for one bracelet and that bracelet recently broke. Now, if you saw this bracelet, and I still have it at home, it literally is a decayed piece of trash from the garbage, he- garbage heaps of Cairo, Egypt. I, for a long time, the actual piece of trash that was my bracelet, I continually sewed it back together with dental floss. So it has many, many rounds of dental floss on it, holding it tightly to my arm as the bracelet of my left arm. Well, the problem is, is if I tried to sell it to any of you, Maybe the most I would get offered is 50 cents. But let's just say you were extravagant and you offered me a dollar. I would say no. Well, what if you offered me five dollars? I would still say absolutely not. You could up it to 50 to 100. You could even offer me a thousand dollars or a round trip ticket anywhere in the world. And I would look at you and say, you don't even have me thinking. Now, what that tells me is it tells me that that bracelet that was on my left arm for so many years has a value to me that it does not have to you. And the question is, what are you missing when you're looking at that bracelet? Well, you're missing a few things. Let me tell you the story. You see, when I was 19 years old, I was a sophomore at university and I decided, uh, just due to a variety of reasons, that it would be wise to invest one semester over in the Middle East. Now, the only reason I chose the study abroad program that I chose was I was flipping through the book and I saw on one of the back pages service opportunities and there was a picture of a girl holding a little baby. Well, I noticed that one service opportunity was you could work in this children's home orphanage started by Mother Teresa and I could work there on days when I didn't have class. Well, So I applied for the program based off that solely. I did not care about the academics. It was political science, farthest thing from my degree. I was going to have to use up all my elective hours for my degree for this one semester. But I said, it's worth it. I flew over to Cairo, Egypt and arrived in January of 2004. Upon arrival, I told the professor, which he didn't appreciate much, but he and I are dear friends to this day. He was at my wedding recently, so don't worry, the story ends well, but Ken will appreciate how much you won't appreciate what I said to him. I said, I'm not really here for the academics. I'm really here because of the opportunity to work with children. 
Now, granted, I was, don't worry, I was one of his best students, okay? So I still worked hard. But that being said, I told him, I said, I'm really here for that. Can I have exemption from the weekend trips of tourism around the country, which had nothing to do with classes, to go see famous sites in Egypt? And can I work all my free days at this children's home with these nuns who take care of babies? Well, they gave me permission. So as my fellow students would go off around the country, I went and went back to my home there in this garbage slum of Cairo called Garbage City, and I work with children. Well, when I arrived in January, the nuns decided to give me six newborn babies to take care of. They were all two to six months old, five girls, one boy. Now, my job was quite simple. My job was to feed them. My job was to burp them. My job was to change all their diapers. And my job was to put them down for their nap. So I would go in and I would do my, my job and I just love on these little girls and this one boy. And I absolutely fell in love as their father. Well, I had two little girls who were identical twins. Now, they were also preemies. They were born in October. This is January. And so they still look very much like newborns. But what a blessing these little girls were. I'll tell you why. You just had to look at them and they beamed. That's it. Like they just smile like you're the greatest thing in the world. Like, yeah. One's name Merna, the other name Jacqueline. So nice when you're taking care of six babies to have two babies that are always happy. Really a blessing. So I could always care for the four babies first, and then after putting them down for their nap, come back to Merna and Jacqueline, have some really cozy cuddle time, and then put them down for their nap last. Well, time went on. After a couple of months of being there, I went to this children's home orphanage one day, and to my surprise, I only had four babies there. Marin and Jacqueline were gone. I, I went to the, one of the sisters, and I said to her, I, I said, where, where are my, my little girls? And she said, well, you have to understand something about those two. They're not true orphans. You see, they have a family in Cairo. Now, Cairo's a city of 22 million people. That's a safe estimate. I could say 30. I'm not exaggerating. It all depends on how many neighborhoods you want to count going out. I'll say 22 for the sake of being a very middle-of-the-road figure. They, she said, they have a family. They were not strong enough to survive. Now they are. They've gone back home, and we're not going to see them again because they don't need us. Well, I needed them. So after I put my four babies down to sleep, I did a, I did a common thing. I had some time to myself, and so I would go next to the empty crib of Marin and Jacqueline, which was glaringly empty, and I would just kneel down next to it, and I prayed a simple prayer. I said, Lord, please bring somebody in the life of Marna and Jacqueline to love them, and bring somebody in their life to share the love of Jesus with them. And that's all. Well, time went on, and I finished the semester, I went back to the United States to university and finished my degree, and at 21, graduated a month later. I moved to the Middle East, but I was heading to Lebanon, a totally different nation. But I had a couple months to spare. I didn't want to waste my summer before starting this job as a teacher and studying Arabic in Lebanon. So I decided I've got some friends in Egypt. Let's go back to Egypt and let's study Arabic for a couple months before starting the job in Lebanon. This is now 2006. Well, I got to Cairo, and two weeks after I arrived, bombs started falling on Beirut, Lebanon, with the war between Hezbollah and Israel. 
And long story short, the school shut down, my job vanished because there was no school to go teach at, and Lebanon would not give me a visa to enter, being an American at that particular time in history, and I was stuck in Egypt. Well, I said to the Lord, you led me this far. You had a reason for me leaving two weeks before. I'm going to stay right here until you show me the next step. Well, I started working with refugees, with street children, international youth, coaching swimming. But one day in December of 2006, I had an afternoon free. So on a free afternoon, what do you do? I decided that I would go and that I would just go meet new people. So I started, I chose one neighborhood in Cairo, a city of 22 million people, and I started walking the streets, meeting people, just saying hi, getting to know their names. And a little girl, a 10-year-old, comes out of the house across the street. Her name is Lobna. And she calls out to me from a distance and she says, Est-ce que tu parles français? Do you speak French? Well, I'm from a French country. So I was kind of surprised because Egypt's an Arabic-speaking country. I said, yes, I do. We started talking. And she said, come meet my family. Well, I went in and met them. They only spoke Arabic. So as we chatted, they said, would you come and tutor our children? Because our children, we can't help them with their homework. We don't understand French. And uh, this would be a great opportunity for them to get more influence within the culture they're studying. So I said, sure, why not? So I started tutoring about 15 children in a random gutted out home in a slum of Cairo. Well, as I'm tutoring this group of kids, and I'm talking a totally gutted out home, I'm talking chickens flying over our heads while we study, I'm talking drinking scalding hot tea in 110 degrees, I'm talking this is a very unique situation. I'm in there teaching. March of 2007, that's where we are now, three months I've been teaching. One random day as I'm teaching all these kids, remember I told you last night something about your eyes? I look at your eyes, right? I've been doing that for a long time. I'm teaching French one day, and as I'm teaching French, by the way, I, I got to just pause for one second. When I went back to university after being in Cairo, my walls were covered with pictures of my babies. Just God, God knows this. this is important detail. So I, I stared at their faces a lot. I prayed for them daily. And when my guy friends walked in my dorm room, they were like weirded out, like, why have all babies on your walls? And then when I told them they, they were my children, that makes it worse, right? But I just left it at that because it's true. It's true. Anyway, so you got to know I, I, their faces were emblazoned on my mind. So now skip back to March of 2007. I'm teaching all these kids. And as I'm teaching those kids that day, it's like it's yesterday. Two little kids walked in the room. I looked over quickly, and I glanced at their eyes, and I stopped teaching French. And I looked over at Lobna, the 10-year-old, and I said, who are those little girls? Because I knew them. She said, those are my little sisters, as though she didn't want to continue the conversation. And, and I said, no. I said, what are their names? She said, well, that one's Myrna, and that one's Jacqueline. And I realized at that very moment that in a city of 22 million people, in a country I never intended to live in again in my entire life, God had not only reunited me with my babies, get this, he had placed me inside their home with access absolutely any time, 
and he had made me the answer to my own prayer that somebody would love them and somebody would share the love of Jesus Christ with them. All that comes back to the bracelet. When those girls were about five years old, they found this bracelet in the trash. And it was the first gift they ever gave to me. Today they're 14 and today they love Jesus and they know they're loved. I see them every year. If you want to see a picture of them in my Bible later, you certainly can. But you see, that bracelet has a value to me. It doesn't have to other people. When you look at the Lord Jesus Christ... I have to ask you, what do you see? Do you see the value of what he is to you? Or do you miss it? In John 12, we're going to see the example of one woman who doesn't miss it. Everybody around her seems to be missing it. Maybe not Lazarus. But that being said, let's read this portion from John 12, beginning in verse 1. And we'll head down to verse 8. Six days before the Passover... Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him. There, Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He had said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. This is the word of the Lord. As we walk through this passage, let's just look at a few things and we're not going to take too much time. We want to just really emphasize the preciousness of Jesus Christ. But notice the first thing we see here, and I think it's important. This is the preoccupation of this woman. The preoccupation. When you look at this passage, what is the preoccupation of this woman? Well, we clearly see it's the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, she's completely preoccupied with Christ. But how? I think the how is practical for us because when we see how she's preoccupied with Christ, we can see how we too ought to be preoccupied with Christ. So what's the first thing we see? Look at her, uh, look at her position, but we'll go look at these together. Her position, her proximity, and then the progression of worship, okay? So her position, her proximity, and then her progression of worship. What do I mean? First thing, position. Now, in this passage, where is her position? Well, we know where it is, right? It says right here that she's falling at his feet. She's wiping his feet with her hair. Now, pause. I want you to go back in your minds to the same character the other two times she's mentioned. The first time Mary is mentioned, or the first time we see a position of Mary, 
It's in Luke 10. We talked about that yesterday. Remember when Martha says, Lord, do you not care that she has left me to serve alone? Where was Mary over in Luke 10? She was sitting at the feet of Jesus. Good. Next one. John chapter 11, where we were yesterday. We find out where she was there. Look at verse 32. It should be on the same page. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. Okay, hang on. I, I, don't, I, I think we can read this all day, but we don't quite get it. We don't quite, quite get it. All right? Go ahead. Come on right here, Logan. Let me just stand right there. You be Christ just for a second. And I want to show you the difference here, okay? Notice what happens. The first time, where is Mary? She's sitting at his feet, listening to him as teacher. Now, you notice her proximity. She's close, right? You notice her position. She's sitting. That's good. Her preoccupation is Christ. But what's the next position? Now she's not sitting and learning. Now she's falling at his feet. And what's she doing? She's weeping. She's weeping at his feet. She's imploring him, why did my brother die? Now that's pretty close, right? That's legitimately close to his feet. But I can get closer. I don't have hair on my head. I have hair on my face, though. You might say this is weird. No, it's not weird. You won't forget it. What does this woman do? She gets to his feet and she wipes his feet with her hair. Is there a more humbling position? Seriously, is there a more humbling position than that? Where you are on your face, wiping your very head against the feet of someone who comes into your house for dinner? No. What she did was true worship. She was so preoccupied with the person of Jesus Christ, she couldn't get close enough. Is that us? Are we so preoccupied where we say, nearer, still nearer, close to thy cross, draw me, my Savior, how precious thou art? Do, 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 we, do we pray, uh, nothing between my soul and my Savior, soul that is blessed, face may be seen, nothing preventing the least of his favor. Keep the way clear, let nothing between, nothing between even hard trials, though the whole world against me convene. I have renounced all sinful pleasure. Jesus is my all. There's nothing between. Is that, is that us? Are we so preoccupied like Mary saying, man, I can't be close enough. This is what she's showing. And I want you to appreciate this progression. Because when we get it, we also, I left my Bible somewhere, here we go. We, we see what, what goes on here. In fact, let me say it like this, okay? She went from learning to lamenting to loving. I want to suggest a lot of you have been learning. A lot of you have been sitting at the feet of Jesus. You might say, well, we've really been sitting at the feet of Ken and, and Nate. No, you have not. Because if you learn from us, it's worthless. You go home, you're not going to be changed. That's, forget it. I've been sitting learning at the feet of Jesus this week. It's been precious. I love him more. I love him more than I did on Sunday. He's so sweet. He's altogether lovely. I want him more than ever. 
You see, we were learning, but learning doesn't stop there. We start lamenting our brokenness, and then we start loving his fullness. Is that where you're at? Where are you? Where are, you? are you just going to sit here and learn? Is that really as close as you're going to get? Or are you going to allow him to have the intimacy with you that he so desires? So we see this beautiful picture again. But we could talk more on that. Let's keep moving. Let, let me give you a little illustration. There's a beautiful... Uh, if you've ever been to the, the land of Israel and you visited Bethlehem, there's a, an experience every tourist goes through. Now, it's actually a pathetic location as it pertains to really feeling close to God, okay? In fact, if you go in there, the ornaments surrounding it, the, the, the incredible smells in it, the rude tourists that are shoving you around, it's not a very pleasant experience. And that is a little town of Bethlehem. Yeah, you're like, seriously? I've got great images of it. Just keep your images of it, all right? Because when you go to Bethlehem, it is like just a haggling center of tourism. But there's one picture there that I really love. And that is when I go into the actual church of the nativity. You see, there's a door that almost every tourist goes in through. This door is only four feet high, and this door is only two feet wide. Now, it's been made smaller and smaller over the years because during the Ottoman Empire, they didn't want the church to be looted. So they made the, the door small enough to where they couldn't get in with their horses. They couldn't get in with their chariots. They couldn't steal and plunder using a vehicle to remove the possession. So they made it small. Thus, the door today is called the door of humility. Because if I... As a six foot two man, I'm to get into that door. You can guess what happens. I walk up to it. And what do I have to do? I have to get low and walk in like this and then stand up. I want to suggest to you, if you want a relationship with Jesus Christ, it hasn't changed. You've got to get low. There's no intimacy with Christ without humility before Christ. There's none. If you're bringing your pride you will never know him. The very premise of salvation is brokenness. If any man would come after me, what's the first thing? He must deny himself. And when denying self, that's not trying harder, that's dying. That's saying, you no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I believe there are some of you here that are considering Jesus Christ right now, and you know Jesus Christ is truth. You do. Like, that's not an issue. I mean, come on. First of all, you stop denying God when you realize that if you see a colored picture, you know a little kid did it, let alone these mountains. You have way more faith if you didn't believe in God. But based on the premise of that, many of you even know Jesus Christ is who he says he is. You're still denying him, and the reason for it is you're not willing to duck down and get low. You are way too arrogant to say you need a savior and that you're a sinner. I want to challenge you. It's not worth it. Get low. Mary shows us her preoccupation and she shows it in some very powerful ways. The door of humility is still the door to the place of intimacy with Jesus Christ. So we see this aspect, her preoccupation. But look at something else here. Look at her presentation. What is the presentation of Mary? Well, let's just say it like this. Her best. She gives absolutely the best thing she has. But listen, she doesn't just give her best. Just like the woman back in Mark 14, she gives it all. When she comes in, she brings pure nard. Pure nard. Now, this is not a little bit of pure nard. 
It's a lot of pure nard. It says a pound of pure nard. All right, hang on, hang on. I don't think you quite get what I'm talking about here, okay? Pure, yeah, if you look at your cologne or your perfume, what is the main ingredient in perfume or cologne? Water, good. You didn't get it, but I'm still going to give you credit, all right? Water, maybe you said it. I didn't hear anybody say water, all right? So, now hang on. In other words, it's not pure nard. If you smell, if you go to like an Egyptian perfume shop and you're buying pure nard, you're buying a tiny little thing of it because you put a drop on and you smell drenched, okay? So she's got pure nard. Now, I believe this pound would be like 11 something ounces of this. All right, so if this is a, a 16.9 ounce, we've got some water out of it. So that's about, I just randomly picked it up. I think you guys are right about at the 11 mark, okay? Now you take that amount of cologne in the kind of cologne or perfume you have that's mixed with water and you're gonna smell crazy, right? I mean, like that's nuts. That's probably about 1,800 sprays. Like you're gonna be, you're gonna have a sore finger before anything else, not to mention your, your nasal passage is going to have something else happening, right? But pure nard. She's drenching him with pure nard. Now, hang on. Tell me this. If I drench somebody with that much cologne, if I wore that much straight pure nard today, who in this amphitheater would not be smelling me? The answer is only those who have no sense of smell. You absolutely would know where I am at every moment because, get this, there's not just a preoccupation there, and also there's not just a presentation of my best. There's also going to be a proclamation. I want you to see her presentation of the value of Jesus Christ to her was also a proclamation to everybody else. In other words, this scent did not stay merely there. Did you notice what it said? It said it what? It filled, it filled the room. I want to suggest to you, and I, I say it in a when I say suggest, I want to just say this is a reality, all right? It's really not a suggestion. When your life, get this, when your life gives Jesus the best of who you are, the best of what you have, your time, your energy, your finances, your passion, your relationships, when you give Jesus the best, you don't have to do much work with your mouth. I'm serious. You're going to have Peter's issue. Just be ready to give an answer for the hope that's in you. The world's going to come and they're going to say, I don't get it. What's up with you? You got something different and I want it. You see, it filled the room. There's not one person in that place that did not know what Mary thought of Jesus Christ. Why? Because her presentation was the best that she had and she gave all of it on Jesus Christ. How much was it worth? Well, based on that parable I gave you the other day of Jesus Christ back in Matthew chapter 18, it would be 60-something thousand dollars. That's a serious gift, all right? I mean, like, we're talking a Hummer Plus. That's a lot just to throw down and say, thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you've done for me. I wonder, though, do we really understand what our proclamation does. Let's think through this just for a couple more minutes. If there's a scent, if, if, if I'm wearing perfume or cologne, I'd be wearing cologne. I don't tend to wear perfume. But if I'm wearing cologne, is the cologne designed to draw you to my cologne or to me? It's designed to draw you to the person. 
It's not designed to draw you to say, wow, that's an incredible smell. Usually, actually, I wear it for the opposite, so they don't smell anything. It's more so to neutralize odors. It's more so, especially when you're in Yosemite, right? It's more so to just like, hey, say, let's, let's have a conversation without thinking about the smell. But here's what I want you to see. We're not drawn to a scent. We're drawn to the source of the scent. And that's what this woman did. What ultimately she does is she doesn't draw people to her. She doesn't draw people to her life. We're talking about her today because she's an example. What does she draw people to? She draws people to the treasure, and the treasure is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask a simple question for us to think about in our own life. Are we drawing people to think more about us or about our Savior? When someone leaves a conversation with us, are they thinking about our accomplishments or are they thinking about his finished work? Are they thinking about what we said maybe or what Christ has done? You see, I, I, I wonder, do I lead in conversations about me or do I lead in conversations about him? Like what is it that I'm trying to communicate to the souls around me? Now, there's more to it than just that, though. When you think about a scent, there, there's like an anatomy of a scent, I think, that we need to understand here. And that is this, that a scent does not smell the same to everybody, does it? Okay, in this passage, we're going to see exactly that, that, that example, but, but I'll, give you, I'll give you a real perspective here, because you won't uh, like the scent that I like, okay? My favorite smell in the world Maybe I, maybe I got some others that are tied, but this is like my favorite. It's water on dust, on a dusty soil. You might be like, that's weird. It's my favorite smell. I love it. Having grown up in the desert, that is an absolutely phenomenal scent. When that dust is settling and the water just mixed with that silty soil. And wow, it's like refreshment. I love the smell of water on dust. Okay, let's go a little more gross here. I also love the smell of a chlorinated pool. You say, why? Because I think of my years of swimming. I think of swim coaching. I think of all the precious kids that I love so much. So when I smell a chlorinated pool and it's burning my eyes and it's getting up in my nasal passage and I'm like choking on the air, I'm like, this is good. <laughs> okay, let's go a little more gross than that. I like the smell of a sweaty gym. I know. Some of you are like, that's gross. No, you know why? That's a place where we've had so many core workouts and we've been able to work out so hard that gymnasts are like, try an iron cross. It's the hardest thing. And we get up on those rings having never touched rings in our life and we pull out a full iron cross. Why? Because we spent so many hours in a sweaty gym working our core, lifting weights. And I see it as a place of hard work accomplishments where, believe me, blood and sweat is not an exaggeration and deep friendships have been made. I like the smell of a sweaty gym. But I'll tell you, those things I just mentioned are not everybody's favorite thing. In this passage, let me ask you, who does not like the smell in the room? A man named Judas, right? He says, why was this fragrance wasted? It could have been. Guys, that's a key word. It could have been been sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor but it was wasted i pray that as you leave this place the world will say why are you wasting your life i want to go further than that i'm going to make a very strong statement you don't have to agree with it but i'm still going to make it 
If the world does not think that you're wasting your life, you're probably wasting your life. Think about it. If you don't have anybody coming up to you and saying you're wasting your life, whether you're wasting your free time, whether you're wasting your money, whether you're wasting your abilities, whether you're wasting uh, just uh, the, the, the way that you're choosing to spend uh, whatever, your vacation, like Ken mentioned, if the world does not think that you're wasting your life, you're probably wasting your life. Judah says to her, why this waste? My friends, it's not going to smell the same to everyone. When you show the preciousness of Jesus Christ, when you show how sweet he is and the intimacy you enjoy and how much time you want to spend with him. In fact, let me tell you this. I don't think there's anything less efficient maybe in the world than the prayer closet. Who says, go into a closet, shut the door, and talk to the wall for three hours? I'm not talking to the wall, but that's what they think. You are wasting your time. My friends, a relationship with Jesus Christ will not be efficient. It will be intimate. And there's a difference. Are you willing to have it? You've got to make your decision. And let me make another statement and suggestion as I start to close. I say, what is Jesus Christ worth to you? But let me go and add on to that. The value of Jesus Christ is being shown in your life right now. So I want to ask you, I look at your life and I ask, what's Jesus worth to you? You don't have to answer. I can see it. I can't see fully you guys. I don't know your life that well, but I I can look at my life and I know. You see, the value of Jesus Christ will not be answered with your lips, it will be answered with your life. What is the preciousness of Jesus Christ to you? We're always going to have the Judases that don't like that sin. Remember 2 Corinthians chapter 2? And when Paul talks about we are the fragrance of Christ, to some it's the aroma of life leading to life, others death leading to death. And we know why. It's this procession going on and as they would spray the fragrance from the incense shakers of the priests there would be prisoners in the procession that were about to die and there would be the warriors that were coming back with victory the warriors loved the smell it was the smell of victory the prisoners knew it was their death when you show how much jesus is worth you know what you're doing you're saying to the world you've got to make a decision either jesus is who he says he is or he's not but I'm all in. And there's no in between. Choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Matthew 6, 24, no man can serve two masters. He must either hate the one and love the other or love the one, hate the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or money. Adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And whoever makes himself, that's a choice, Lacey, whoever makes himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I ask us in all love and all sincerity, what is Jesus Christ worth to you? What is the preciousness of Jesus Christ to you? I'm going to give us about two minutes of silence and then I'm going to pray and close it out. And I know we have announcements, but here's what I want you to do during that time of silence. 
I want you to honestly answer, not based on your heart, but based on your life. What is Jesus worth to you? Not, 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 what do you want him to be worth? No, that's not the question. That's another question. That's not it. Not, what? oh, Jesus, I think you're this. I don't, not what, I think you are. I'm asking, what is he actually worth to you right now? What message is your life preaching? Because there was only one person in that room that said, he's worth me rubbing his feet with my hair, making a fool of myself, and having everybody else think I just wasted everything. I want you to notice one thing. Who never talks in this passage? Mary. Jesus says, she has prepared my body for burial. You know that everybody else was too late except for this woman and the woman in Mark 14? Everybody else was too late. They showed up on Sunday morning, but that was too late. Why? He'd already risen. For all eternity, we're going to have, I think, two women that prepared his body for burial. The rest missed the boat. Forever they're rewarded for having anointed his body beforehand because he's the resurrection and the life. And death was short-lived. Are you missing your short-lived opportunity to show the preciousness of Jesus Christ to you? Take two minutes. Ask, what is the world seeing? And then I'll close in prayer. Our Father, your Son really is priceless. And we love Him because He first loved us. And my love is so incomplete, and yet I long, I long that it might be more like His love for me. I can't get there by trying harder, but I know I will get there by knowing him more intimately. Lord, I pray that no one here would feel condemned by where they're at, but they would feel convicted that he wants them to know him more. You say, I stand at the door and I knock, and you're talking to the church. I stand at the door and knock, and if any man hears my voice and will open the door, I'm going to come in, I'm going to eat with him. 
I'm going to commune with them. I'm going to hang out with them. I'm going to tell them my stories. I'm going to let them know my heart. I'm just not sure we want to know him, Father, and I'm sorry. I think we do, but I'm not sure our lives do. Would you wake us up? Wake me up. I enjoy but a fragment of what I could enjoy. I'm so content to just eat crumbs that are falling from the table when you say, pull up a chair, child. I've got steak and potatoes for you too. I'm sorry, Lord, that so often I devalue your son. But thank you that he valued me with a cross. I give him all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.